This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows that the day Get your spine-tingling tales ready. Later in the program, we'll open up the phones and... You'll try and frighten the pants off me. If you've had an, a, a paranormal, supernatural encounter, I want to hear about it. Uh, we'll probably get to that after midnight. And uh, this is uh, probably one of my favorite uh, uh, parts of the program. One of the, the best things about doing this kind of a show is uh, no guests, no experts, just you, me, and the telephone and your incredible stories. And I've said this many times, and I mean it, these are, I believe, some of the greatest calls anywhere you're going to hear in talk radio or radio, period. The, uh, the, the people that come to the fore with their, I believe, genuine experiences, whether it's a UFO sighting, whether it's a ghost uh, experience, and whether or not you believe in these sorts of phenomena, I think if you sit back and listen to the people who call into the program and tell these stories... It's hard to argue with the sincerity in which uh, these people tell these stories. They've had, I believe, a genuine experience. Whether they've actually seen a UFO or a ghost or had some uh, experience with a, a, shadow, uh, a shadow person or a demonic entity or uh, whether they've seen Bigfoot or something. But whether you believe it or not, you cannot, I, 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 I don't believe you cannot dispute the sincerity that comes across on the uh, the radio. Spine-tingling tales. So hopefully what will happen as I leave the studio tonight after listening to these spine-tingling tales, I, I, I make that mad dash to my, uh, my car because I'm so frightened. <laughs> uh, I tell you, it's happened. 
where um, I've actually left the studio somewhat shaken because of the types of calls uh, that come in. So we'll get to that a little bit later. Also coming up shortly, we hope, and we're trying to reach our guest frantically at the moment. If um, you remember in public school, we all had to do memory work, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And uh, tonight's guest is probably going to put a lot of what you've learned in school, in your history books, into question, particularly the history of North America uh, before Columbus. I think we've all come to uh, recognize that Christopher Columbus probably wasn't the first European, even, uh, to land on the shores of North America. Uh, but my guest coming up shortly says that Christopher Columbus was probably the last. Frank Joseph is the former editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine and uh, the uh, author of Advanced Civilizations in Prehistoric America. He's going to talk about a number of advanced ancient civilizations in pre-Columbian North America that rose, flourished, and fell uh, and this is before Rome ruled the classical world. Long before Columbus, there were some very advanced civilizations here in North America, some of them actually in, um, in communication with Europe at the time. Frank Joseph coming up. All right. I mentioned the spine-tingling tales. If you want another night out uh, that's going to... Uh, well, titillate, frighten, amuse, probably some laughs in there as well. And it's a throwback to a, a bygone era, the Victorian uh, age, the, uh, when the, the spiritualist movement was, uh, was coming to the fore. It's called The Paranormal Show. And the, uh, the proprietor has uh, been with us before, but uh, we just wanted to, uh, to give you a bit of a preview. What's coming up? Actually, down in uh, Yorkville, in uh, just a few more days, the 19th actually is uh, the next production of the uh, the Paranormal Show at the Heliconian Hall, which is on 35 Hazelton Avenue. And uh, he is, as I say, the uh, the proprietor of the Paranormal Show, the uh, the ringleader, if you will. He's also the fiendish owner of Canada's last traveling circus sideshow, the Carnival Diablo's World of Wonders, uh, but he's here to talk about the paranormal show. Vlad Eisengrim, hello and welcome to The Conspiracy Show, my friend. How are you? Very well. Good evening, Richard. And you are up in uh, in Ottawa uh, tonight. Are you, are you doing the, the paranormal show up there? As a matter of fact, no. I'm, I'm spending some time with some people that work in the world of the paranormal up here in Ottawa. Ah, you mean the uh, the, the the Senate, the the, <laughs> the Chamber of so Sober Second Thought? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, because I'm guessing there are some ghosts and some skeletons hanging around there. Um, never mind that. Now let's get back to the the paranormal show again. For those not familiar with uh, with what happens uh, during this most fascinating evening, tell us what they're going to see. Well, the Paranormal Show is a, uh, is a show based on supernatural activity. And um, with the advent of TV shows like Medium, Most Haunted, uh, the, like Supernatural, uh, most people can only see this type of entertainment on TV. 
I'm bringing it to you live on stage. You'll see things like mind reading, hypnosis, but also at the end of the show, I perform a seance and I use Edison's machine to talk to the dead to actually help me during the actual seance itself. And, and this, um, I've, I've heard about Edison's machine. There is a sort of a replica that's uh, to be found in, in, uh, among uh, paranormal investigators these days. It's called Frank's Box. Now, Edison's machine, and it is reported that he was, he was working on this invention just prior to his death. Edison firmly believed that you could communicate with the other side. So how does this Edison's machine work? Does it actually allow live two-way conversations with the spirit? Well, the interesting thing is, is Edison understood that um, uh, a telegraph was a very simple piece of equipment that worked on electrical impulse as much as we do. And he felt that if you could put two plates, two copper plates around eight millimeters apart and wire them out to a telegraph that's wired out to an old battery, he was hoping that when you threw a seance, the ectoplasmic energy of the spirit would come between the plates and make the hammer strike. And if the energy was sentient enough to understand what it was doing, possibly it could speak to us in code, Morse code. Ah, Morse code. Yes. And this is, I mean, do you guarantee that uh, you're going to make contact uh, during the show, or is it kind of a hit and miss thing? It's not a hit and miss because um, we've been very lucky. I source out actual um, uh, places that are extremely haunted. Uh, we don't play in normal theaters normally. We, we, like the Heliconian Hall is a church that was built in 1875. And... Um, it has a rather interesting history, and the, uh, the amount of ghosts that are actually attached to this place are about five. Now, uh, a couple of weeks back, we played at the uh, paper mill at Todd Morton Mills, and again, this is a theater that um, has been there for quite a long time, but Todd Morton Mills has had quite a few different deaths over the past century. And whenever I play at a place, I try and find a place that has more than one haunting so that we're not tapping into one spirit. Sometimes we're p tapping into four or five at a time. And uh, I know that you were at the Heliconian uh, on uh, Friday. That was the 5th, but you've got two more dates uh, coming up, the 19th yeah. and the 26th. That's Friday the 19th, Friday the 26th at the Heliconian, and that is on Hazelton Lanes. It's 35 Hazelton Avenue, yeah. rather, 35 Hazelton Avenue in uh, Yorkville. Showtime is at 9 o'clock, and you have to buy tickets at the door? Yes. Uh, the, the box office opens at 8 o'clock, and uh, it's $30 cash at the door. We don't have an Interact system or anything. Um, and uh, when you come, it's first-come, first-served seating. So we've got 75 seats at the Heliconian Hall. It's, it's a very intimate but beautiful room. Uh, it's inside of a large old church. And uh, it will be a lot of fun because of the fact that everybody will be involved in one way or another during the actual performance. What else goes on? I mean, you use, uh, you use Edison's uh, box and, uh, and have uh, a communication with, with the spirit world during the show. What else goes on? Well, during, during the show, um, we, uh, we split the audience in half. So one side of the audience is playing against the other. And we actually uh, do a mental tug-of-war with telekinesis, where we have one side of the audience try and move an object with their mind, while another side of the audience is trying to move a different object with their mind. And the strange thing is, if we have an audience of a certain size, we can actually make the objects move. And this happens as an experiment in the show, and one side will win over the other over the course of the evening. It's a lot of fun because of the fact that um, this is just one of the things that we go through. Now, the, the other thing about performing on stage in the show is the fact that I um, sometimes use some of my 
um, well, how can I put this? Uh, some of my uh, some of my special powers, in the sense that I've actually been studying the human condition for a long time, and um, I like to play games occasionally with the audience, uh, where I um, will pit myself against audience members for money, where I can actually read them, and I'm a human lie detector. Oh. And I will actually have them lie to me or tell me the truth, but by the end of the game, they have to tell me whether it was right or wrong. And if I'm correct, I win. If they're correct, they win. Ah, so it's not all about uh, uh, you know go- ghosts and things that go bump in the night. You are also a, uh, a mentalist. So yes. uh, people are in for a, a very interesting show. And again, it's uh, Feb 19th and 26th at the, uh, the Hel- Heliconian Hall, 35 Hazleton Avenue in Toronto. And then... You're heading back, I believe, to the Paper Mill Theatre at Todd Morden Mills, 67 Pottery Road, next month, March 11th, 12th, 13th, 18th, 19th, and 20th. Yes, we'll be doing six shows back at the Paper Mill again. So if you, uh, if you by chance miss us here in February, we will be back doing the Paper Mill again, uh, which w- they're very two v- different types of feelings, these buildings, because, again, the church, the, um, the actual ghosts that haunt it are priests. Ah. Whereas at the mill... Believe it or not, most of the people that are haunting it are the mill workers themselves. Interesting. So it'd be a very different, uh, and everything. a very different feel. All yes. right. So uh, if people are interested in more information, they can go to the website theparanormalshow.net. Vlad Eisengrim, always a pleasure. Can't wait to have you back here in studio. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. The Paranormal Show again, Haliconian Hall. Next Friday, the 19th, and the following, the 26th, showtime, 9 p.m., 35 Hazleton Avenue, and uh, you have to buy your tickets at the door. All right, we're trying desperately to reach Frank Joseph, former editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine, to talk about America's secret history before Columbus. And uh, if we don't get a hold of him, we'll just we'll go right into uh, spine-tingling tales and open up the phones, make those available to you. Your opportunity to raise the hackles on the back of my neck. This is The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We're having some trouble reaching out to uh, Wisconsin the home of Frank Joseph, our scheduled guest. We'll keep trying to reach uh, Frank. In the meantime, uh, let's open up the lines and get some spine-tingling tales here going on the program. 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. And 1-866-740-4740. That's toll-free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740-4740. Again, if you've had an experience, a paranormal experience, something that you just can't explain... A strange coincidence, an encounter with a UFO, a strange creature. We had uh, Dr. Bill Gibbons on the uh, the program last week, the uh, dinosaur hunter. He certainly encountered many strange creatures over uh, his lifetime. Sea monsters, Bigfoot. There are Bigfoot in Ontario, or at least there have been sightings. That may surprise you. Uh, in fact, just about every state south of the border, including places like Rhode Island, there have been Bigfoot sightings. So if, uh, if you've had one, 
in uh, places like uh, Minnesota, upstate New York. Lots of Bigfoot sightings. Love to hear from you. 416-360-0740, That's toll free from just about anywhere. And in addition to Spine Tingling Tales, if uh, there's anything of a conspiratorial nature you'd like to discuss, we can uh, certainly entertain those calls as well. Sometimes those are the most frightening calls of all. Nothing to do with the paranormal. It has more to do with, uh, I guess, the the secret agenda of the elite. Let me uh, give you a heads up what's coming up on next week's program while I have a moment. A special two-hour panel discussion, and we'll have... uh, Uh, sort of rotating panelists coming in and out of the program uh, to talk about, it's really the biggest question, perhaps uh, the most important question, and that is, what happens to us after we die? The instant of physical death, the moments following, the days and weeks uh, following our deaths, what happens? Obviously, there are a number of perspectives on this, and we'll try to approach it from as many as we can over the course of the two hours, there are those, of course, who subscribe to uh, uh, reincarnation. We'll, we'll talk about that. There are those uh, who don't necessarily subscribe to reincarnation, but they certainly believe that uh, the soul survives physical death. And that would include, of course, most of the major religions. We'll, uh, we'll also look at it from that perspective. And uh, there'll be some others uh, as well. So next week on the program, for the full two hours, what happens after we die? An interesting study at uh, Cardiff University in Wales, uh, new research, they say, overwhelmingly supports the view that human life started from outside our Earth. An astrobiologist there says the first seeds of life were deposited on our planet from space 3,800 years ago. Sorry, 3,800 million years ago. He claimed microbes from outer space arrived on Earth from comets, which then multiplied and seeded to form human life. He says his evidence, published in Cambridge University's International Journal of Astrobiology, showed humans and all life on Earth came from aliens brought to the Earth by comets hitting the planet. All right, let's say hello to uh, Larry in Toronto. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Larry. Dan, could you lock Larry in for me? Is he there? There we go. Hey, Larry. Hello. Good evening. Welcome. Oh, good evening, Richard, and thank you for having me on your show tonight. All right. I understand you've had an out-of-body experience. Yes, I did, and this was several years ago when I was living in uh, London, and I've never really shared it publicly, but it has been such a fantastic experience, and it did help me to understand that, you know, these things might be quite possible. So um, to explain what actually did take place, uh, I was having a nap one evening, and then suddenly I felt as if my whole body was becoming elevated uh, in spirit or something away from my natural body, which was lying on the bed. Then as my body started going up, 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 I'm saying to myself, this can't be real but I can try something to see if it's uh, really happening in some form or fashion. Well, did you try opening your eyes to see if you were actually levitating? My eyes was open. And were you it levitating? It was so un- unbelievable what was taking place. All right. So then while I was uh, going above my physical body and away from the bed, I said to myself, 
Let me try turning to my left and see if consciously I can turn my spirit in a left direction uh, as I was ascending from the bed. So I started turning in an anti-clockwise uh, direction, and I felt that this was actually happening. Then I said to myself, let me try turning in a clockwise direction and see if it will happen in this opposite way. It actually started that I began rotating as if uh, heading towards looking at my physical body on the bed from a distance above the bed. So you were actually, with your eyes open, you were looking down on your physical body still Not lying in the bed. Yet. I was rotating and sensing that if I continued turning, I would see my physical body from a distance on the bed. So then I said to myself, let me see if I continue the full 180-degree turn if I would see myself lying on the bed. Okay? So then I started rotating almost to a full 180-degree turn. And then I said to myself, hey, wait a second. If I continue like this, I'm going to be seeing myself on the bed lying down, and this sounds kind of scary. So then I said to myself, Larry, get back, face upwards, and let yourself go back into your body on the bed. And this is exactly what happened as I descended back down into my physical body on the bed. So you didn't actually, you, you decided against trying to look at your body. You thought it might be, what, too upsetting? It's uh, not so much upsetting as a bit scary. Right, right. <laughs> because I never had any experience like this. And I'm saying to myself, if I were to see myself lying on the bed, you know, how can I accept this? It's just not supposed to happen. Larry, it would have changed your life completely, I'm guessing. It would have changed everything you thought you know about, uh, about uh, your life, where you came from, who you are, what you are. Exactly. Actually, I do believe it may have been uh, a bit of an astral travel, but um, I didn't want to prolong it or allow it to become so fascinating to me that um, I become possessed by the experience. So I think that that's why I decided to revert back, face upward, and allow myself to go back into my physical body. Larry, thanks for the call. Listen, astral travel is not for everyone. We'll uh, come back into some more spine-tingling tales. Virginia, Michael and Victoria Harbor, you've got a line. Hold on to it. We'll get to you. Hopefully just ahead of Frank Joseph as we discuss pre-Columbian North America and its secret history. Has our past been hidden from us? Are certain archaeological sites being, or archaeological finds being suppressed, stored away somewhere in the back of a museum, not for public consumption? We'll find out, we hope. In the meantime... We'll continue to take your spine-tingling tales. 416-360-0740. Toll-free from out of town. 1-866-740-4740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. I've had one paranormal experience in my life. I've shared it with uh, you before. Um, some people, though, I guess are just tuned into uh, another wavelength, and uh, these sorts of things happen to them time and time again, whether it's... Uh, 
uh, encounters with ghosts or shadow people or uh, uh, UFO sightings. I would love to have a UFO sighting. I have not. Uh, And uh, I guess I need to be spending more time outside looking up at the night sky. Uh, But if you've had one, we'd uh, love to hear from you here at 416-360-0740. Let's say hello to uh, Michael, who is in uh, Victoria Harbor. Michael, are you there? I'm here. Victoria Harbor, is that in uh, British Columbia? No, it's in uh, Ontario. It's about uh, 100 miles north of Toronto, uh, halfway between Wabashine or Port Severn and Midland on ah. the shores of Georgian Bay. Wonderful, beautiful country up there. Well, yes, uh, welcome, my friend. Thank you. What is your name? <laughs> well, it's Richard Serrett. Okay, Richard. Um, I, I have something to say that doesn't have anything to do with the paranormal. It has to do with the pre-Columbian civilization and the conspiracy that's involved. I can start off by telling you that there are more um, Egyptian artifacts in uh, the Vatican than there are in Egypt. Um, when uh, Cortez came to uh, Mexico the first time, the Jesuits followed him, and uh, and what they did was they burned all of the uh, the buildings that they could find, um, and then built churches on top of them. And uh, I've been to, going to Mexico since 1974. I've seen most of the ruins in Mexico and the previous civilization, the Mayans, the Olmecs, the Toltecs, was uh, uh, very, very extremely advanced, at least, if not more so, than the Egyptians. And the similarities between the pyramids that were built in, in, in Mexico and the, and the pyramids in the Giza pyramids, at least two out of the three Giza pyramids, they, they, they're all uh, in relation to the sun and to the various solstices or equinoxes. Um, yes, I, I've, uh, I've talked to David Hatcher Childress, who is uh, the, the publisher of World Explorer magazine. Yeah. And uh, he's written extensively about uh, Egyptian artifacts found in the Grand Canyon, including, I believe, uh, uh, mummified uh, remains. Right. And uh, I, I, Frank Joseph, who we're expecting to reach here uh, shortly, I hope, um, uh, has uh, I've talked to him in the past about a, uh, a major mining operation that was taking place on the northern shores of Lake Superior, uh, because when we talk about the the uh, the Bronze Age that uh, that happened in in uh, in Europe, right? There's not enough copper in Europe uh, that would have uh, allowed for uh, that sort of uh, development, and so the question was, where did they get the copper? Well, uh, five thousand years ago they've uh, discovered there was this huge copper mining and copper of course is a major ingredient in 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 bronze copper was being mined uh, on the northern shores of lake superior this is some 4500 years before columbus arrived right. and uh, the uh, the uh, the native americans uh, i believe of um, uh, well upper wisconsin and the the, the name of the uh, the nation there uh, escapes me but they described uh, and it's part of their oral and written tradition, uh, these sort of these pale-faced seafaring uh, uh, people, uh, they say that uh, they committed the sin against uh, Mother Earth by, you know, uh, scraping her bones, which sounds mysteriously like a mining operation. And uh, it's been suggested by Frank Joseph and others that it, were, it was the ancient Egyptians, the, the uh, 
the ancient uh, or the Minoans, the Trojans, perhaps even the ancient Greeks that were over here doing this mining and, and transporting the copper on huge ocean-going vessels back to Europe. And uh, this, was, this made the Bronze Age possible. So, well, well it's, 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 it's even a little more complicated than that. Um, there are various pyramids that reflect pi, which, as you know, is 22 sevenths. And the base of the pyramids at Teotihuacan, which is north of Mexico City, are based on two pi, and the pyramids of Giza, at least two out of the three of them, that are reflected completely on the Orion complex. Um, uh, and I don't know whether you know that the Earth revo- the the Earth revolves in a wobble, so that it comes back to the same place that it was twenty three thousand years ago. And in Giza, you're talking about the Milky Way representing the 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 the, um, uh, the Nile, and and it it is really 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 strange because in Chichen Itza, which is another pyramid, maybe the more most famous one in the world, there is a picture of a bearded man and a picture of uh, on a wall and a, in a not a tomb but in in this complex uh, there's a bearded man and there's a man that looks like he has a space suit on or a space helmet on and i don't know whether you knew this but the mayans and the olmecs and the toltecs were not sure suit just like the um, uh, the, the native uh, the, right, right. the native indians and so to see a picture of a bearded man and uh, and these Teotihuacan, and, and to, to really kind of go, I don't know whether I'm going contrary to what you just told me, but when it, they've estimated that it had a population of, uh, of uh, 240,000 when Greece at its apex was 40,000. My word, my word. And, and it had no warriors. Now, they couldn't figure out the Mayan language. They have all these stelae and glyphs. You know, you've heard of hieroglyphics. Certainly, certainly. But they call them glyphs in Mexico, and they got a bunch of computer geeks. Um, oh, I, I would say, twenty years ago, and they figured out the language. A guy named Thompson, who excavated Chichen Itza, believed that that uh, the the Mayans had no concept of time. They said that they were just thinking in terms of eternity. But now we know that the Mayan calendar goes only to 2012. We do. Michael, listen, uh, um, I, I really appreciate your, your call, and uh, in the absence of Frank Joseph, who was to join us to talk about pre-Columbian uh, North America, you've, uh, you've enlightened us a great deal and provided some amazing uh, information. I hope you'll join us again. And well, i got call one more for... fact for you. All right, quickly. The, the pyramids north of Mexico City, Teotihuacan, means the land of the giants. Or the land of the gods. Yes. And the reason the Aztecs called it that was because they couldn't figure out how anybody could build them. In Greek, God meet, God is Theos. So Teo Tewakon is pretty, you know, it's pretty pretty close. God, God. Right, right. I, I, I just happened to study Greek for five years. Ah, all right. Yeah. Well, I happen to be married one to, for ten. <laughs> so, <laughs> Michael, great hearing from you. Thank you for your call from Victoria okay. Harbor. All right, let's say hello next to Virginia, who's calling from Sister Center, Ontario. Good evening, Virginia. Hello. Um, I've had a lot of experiences, psychic and previous lives, 
But I'd like to tell you about one that my psychic teacher told me about, which I found very interesting. Now, when you say you're a psychic teacher, do you mean your spirit guide, or do you actually have... No, no. A lady who was in Burlington who opened a place where this sort of thing was discussed and taught and learned. All right. Progressed. So tell and me about she your was experience. a very famous person in this area. Okay? All right. Um, she told us... I'll, I'll get to the meat of it. She um, went to her friend, and a spirit came to her wanting her to go to the attic, and she didn't particularly feel she could. But eventually she was told that this was the father, and he was dead, and he wanted her. So she went there, and there was a trunk, and he kept newspaper articles that he cut. And looking through them, she saw, found her previous life and death, which she knew about. And um, so she decided she'd like to meet her children from her previous life. So she went over to England to meet them, thinking she wouldn't say who she was. And while she was there, they were very worried because their father had died so many years ago, and they had to find this piece of paper. And they didn't know where to look, and he would know where it was. So she told them who he, she was. She was their father in their previous life and took them and showed them where the document was. Amazing. And, she, and, and the document was indeed found. I, can I mention one other thing? My sister, um, a friend of hers, a very close friend who was dying, said he would send her a letter from the other side, and they made a little emblem that would be put on the bottom so she'd know it was real. Yes. And about four months later, this lady brought, a psychic lady brought um, something that she had gotten, and it was from him from the other side telling her it was like, and there was this little emblem at the bottom. That's remarkable, Virginia. Listen, uh, thank you for the call from uh, Sister Center. I don't, uh, uh, I don't, I really don't know what to make of the the whole uh, past life phenomena because it's just not part of my uh, my faith. However, I've I've sat here on numerous occasions behind a microphone and uh, witnessed a, a past life regression. Something is going on. Uh, mm-hmm. Is the uh, the person actually? experiencing a past life? Is it some trick of the mind? I'm not really sure, uh, but I'm sure that that will come up uh, next week on the program when we uh, dedicate the full two hours uh, to uh, discussing what happens after we die. We'll have a number of, uh, of panelists, and uh, we'll also invite your calls as well to get your take on what you think happens at the moment of physical death uh, and then beyond. All right, uh, let's say hello next to uh, Chris. Hey, Chris, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Uh, hi, Richard. Hi, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Toronto. All right, welcome. Hi. And uh, I was calling you because I'd like to share an encounter with a demon. I'm not sure if you believe in demons. I certainly do. Yeah, anyway, so so here's here's what happened, okay? First, I, I did the uh, hypnotic regression on myself. How did you learn to do that? I I went through a past life regression session before, and I've and I've took a, a hypnosis training course. I've just I'm actually a newly certified hypnotherapist. Ah, okay. Yeah. So basically, what I did, I did a, a regression on myself. All right. And so I I just wanted to to look back at uh, at my school when I was in. In elementary school. Okay, so you were hoping just to, to travel back to your own past life. It's not a past life. It's it's, it's understood your life. own your own past. Yes. Right, and something ter- went terribly awry. I'm guessing. Yes. 
So tell me about it. Uh, what what happened was uh, here's what what really strange happened. Okay, when I was when I turned eight years old, I was in third grade. Suddenly, everyone started bullying me for no reason. I don't know why. Just like that. Okay. And based on the the regression, I came into contact with this demon and. I will describe how it looks like. It uh, it wears. It was wearing a brown cloak. It w- it had white hair that's that's long, but but not long enough to reach its shoulders, and its face was completely in shadow. But later on, it revealed its face to me. And if you wouldn't mind, I will send you an email of how it looked like. All right, I would appreciate that. Now, how, Chris, were you able to determine that this entity was, in fact, uh, demonic? Because I felt, uh, I felt this fear. I don't know what it is. It, as if it's suddenly injecting fear into my head. Did you try to communicate I, with it, or it to you? Yes, and I was feeling some kind of, of pressure being sucked through my third eye, the forehead area. All right, the pineal gland. Yeah. All right. And were you able? Did you attempt to communicate with it? I attempted to communicate. I I asked what what is your purpose here? What are you doing here? Why are you doing this to me? The standard questions. And did you get a response? It only basically tried to flip me off in in sort of demonic way. So it just kind of like <sighs> something like that. All right. Now, then, why did you encounter this? Do you think while you were uh, in? under a hypnotic regression while you were attempting to investigate part of your past. Why did it pop up then, do you think? Because I, I tried to venture into, into a locked girl's bathroom that has been locked for, for God knows how long, and it's been rumored that somebody killed herself in there. At, at your old school? Yes. I see. Interesting, interesting. Okay. And... Um, so have you attempted to go back to that, that point in your life through past life regression or hypnotic uh, regression? Have you attempted to do it again? Not yet, because, uh, because for some reason I feel, I feel scared just thinking about that demonic entity. Understood, yes. <laughs> well, one would have to be very careful. Yeah, but here's, here's what this demon told me. I mean, not through words, but, it's, but demons communicate just by injecting things into your head. Okay, so the demon basically told me that he hates me so much, he, he made those kids bully me because he wanted me to just kill myself. That uh, would certainly, uh, I think, be consistent with a, uh, a demon or a demonic entity's um, uh, method- methodology, I guess. Yes, Chris, uh, that would certainly be something I would want to steer, steer clear from. And... Uh, I guess, I guess, no, I, I gotta, sorry, I gotta head into a break, but uh, just uh, exercise caution, I guess, obviously, that's the uh, the message there. Anytime you're uh, attempting a, a hypnotic regression, you never know what you're going to bump into. All right, more of your spine-tingling tales on the other side. 416-360-0740, 360-0740 in the 416, toll-free. From just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740. More of your spine-tingling tales right here on The Conspiracy Show. I'm Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett.
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The website is richardserrett.com. Richard, let me spell the last name, S as in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T, richardserrett.com. And that's your portal to the conspiracy show. And uh, there's the uh, the latest news on upcoming shows on the homepage and also a, a past show audio archive, a book and DVD club, uh, a top secret documents page, a regular contributors page, and also lots of uh, wonderful things that you can download, including uh, episodes of my Strange Planet feature, which runs here on the uh, the radio station, AM 740, Saturday, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at 7.30 p.m. And also, a um, uh, it's called the 9-11 Files. My, uh, all my previous shows on the, uh, the 9-11 attacks, various uh, theories as to uh, who was behind it and uh, how it all unfolded uh, versus the uh, sort of official version. You can download those as well. You can also follow me on uh, Twitter. And speaking of Twitter, I had a Twitter uh, uh, the other day, or a tweet rather, uh, in response to the show we did last week on remote viewing. You'll recall I had uh, four volunteers in the adjacent studio uh, that were taught, uh, given a two-hour crash course in remote viewing by Joanne Crobot, a Toronto uh, area remote viewer. And uh, they were given a target. Uh, it was hidden to them. They weren't uh, told what it was. It was uh, written down in an envelope, a sealed envelope that was right in front of me here in this studio. And uh, keeping in mind uh, that uh, the target could be anything, animal, vegetable, mineral, it could be a location, it could be a person, it could be absolutely anything, anywhere in the world. And uh, all four of our volunteers, again, keeping in mind, they were given a two-hour crash course on remote viewing, two hours. They were able to... uh, how shall I describe it? Uh, they were able to uh, sort of zero in that this target was a man-made structure, somebody's residence, a large man-made structure, somebody's residence. Now, you could say that's pretty vague. Again, though, it could have been absolutely anything. It could have been a, a tree, uh, a, you know, a redwood in California. It could have been a, uh, a coffee cup. Uh, the actual hidden target, which we re- revealed towards the end of the show, was the Taj Mahal. So I received a tweet from a gentleman who said, I'm sorry, but a log cabin, as a number of uh, the panelists uh, or volunteers uh, thought it might be, uh, a log cabin is not the Taj Mahal. Well, that's true. That's true. But I stand behind those volunteers to be able to, to come up with a man-made structure, a residence is still pretty darn good. No, a log cabin is is a long way from the Taj Mahal. But uh, think what they might have been able to do uh, given a, uh, let's say, a a weekend course in remote viewing rather than just a two-hour course. So still pretty impressive, I happen to think. All right, let's say hello to Marsha in Akron, Ohio. Good evening, Marsha. Hi, it's Antwerp, Ohio. Antwerp, Uh, Ohio. All right, welcome nonetheless. Hi, how you doing? I'm well, thank you. I wanted to call and tell you about the experience I had. Um, I was sound asleep one night, and uh, something woke me up. And when I woke up, I seen this um, 
uh, smoke coming down on top of me. It was a thick smoke. And everybody said it was from the um, windows because I lived on a busy street, but it wasn't. And after I jumped up, I didn't feel threatened or anything, but after I jumped up, it, it disappeared, but I thought that was pretty weird. Did it have any odor? No, nope. It just was a real thick uh, smoke. It didn't have no, you know, it was like two inches wide, but it didn't have an odor, and it didn't have any features or anything to it. Okay, so it, it wasn't cigarette smoke coming from nope. the next apartment or out the window? Oh. Uh, no. And... No. Um, were any of the windows open? Nope. Okay, so it doesn't nope. sound like it would have been, uh, you know, frosty air. Sometimes, you nope. know, as you're uh, you're breathing, we have that uh, yeah. frosty air. And and so you 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 think it may have actually been a, a spirit? I think so, because they lived in. Uh, it was the hysteri- historical part of uh, Fort Wayne, and it was an old castle type house. And I had talked to the other people that lived in the house, but they'd never seen anything. I was the only one. Right. And uh, now, when, when you opened your eyes uh, to, and you saw this, uh, this um, apparition, let's call it, were you awakened from a deep sleep? Uh, or... Yep. Yep. Okay. So, yeah. I was awakened from a deep sleep. And uh, were, you, were you frightened, confused, surprised? I, what? I was more frightened, you know, but then after, after I had woke up and everything, I was like, did I really see it? You know what I mean? Because yes. I was, like, sound asleep, and then it just woke me up out of a deep sleep. That's interesting. Uh, I, I alluded yeah. to my one and only paranormal experience, and that's what happened to me. It was an apparition, and, and I, again, I also awoke from a very deep sleep. And, uh, for you know, and I don't normally do that. I just suddenly yeah. felt a, pr- a presence. Is that what happened to you? You felt a presence? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, like, uh, it was like it woke me up, and it was coming down on top of me. And when I woke up, well, you know, I got scared because, you know, I, I never, it, you know, woke me up out of a deep sleep. Certainly, and I yeah. couldn't figure out what was going on, you know. I don't know about about you, Marsha, but, you, you know, the, the saying about uh, the, the hairs in the back of your neck standing up, that's exactly yeah. what happened to me. <laughs> yeah, and see, I stayed in that apartment after that. That's you very know, brave of you. But I kept the light on <laughs> in the bedroom, you know, because I was... Uh, I was scared, you know. Where would we be without uh, nightlights? Not just for kids, that's for darn sure. Oh, I know. Once you've had an I experience, know. you can't put the uh, the toothpaste back in the tube, as they say. Marsha, no. thank you for calling from uh, Ohio. Good to hear from you. I hope you'll call again. All right, more spine-tingling tales on the other side. Maybe you've seen a UFO. Maybe you've seen some strange creature you couldn't identify. Something else that went bump in the night. You're uh, hesitant to tell friends, neighbors, colleagues because, well, you know why. You'll get that uh, strange look from them as they back out of the room slowly, smiling. Uh, But you have a sympathetic ear right here, I can assure you. We're all friends. We've all had an experience we can't explain. So let's talk. Back with more. On the other side, my name is Richard Serrett. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. 
We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Love from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Perhaps you're sitting there thinking, wow, what a fun job. Sitting behind a microphone, chatting, telling stories, listening to stories, interviewing interesting people. Well, you're absolutely right. It's a terrific uh, job, a terrific career. I'm very privileged and honored to be able to do it. And... um, Perhaps, though, you'd like to take it a step further. Maybe you'd like to learn how to produce, write, host, and the talk radio and talk TV industry. Well, I am offering a 39-hour, 13-week course called Talk the Talk with Richard Serrett. It begins Thursday, February the 18th. I'll be offering the course at the Toronto Media and Film College, 1 Eglinton Avenue East, here in Toronto. And uh, the deadline to register is Friday, February the 12th. So if you're interested, you can uh, get a hold of me through the website, richardserrett.com. Click on the talk radio logo on the right-hand side, and uh, all the contact information is right there. Uh, Maybe you're thinking about uh, taking a full-time radio and television broadcasting course, but you're not quite sure if it's for you. This would be an excellent way uh, to find out. Uh, or perhaps you're already in a radio and television, but not specifically in uh, the talk radio, talk TV field, and uh, perhaps want to uh, upgrade your, your skills. This course, again, might just be the ticket. Talk the talk with yours truly, Richard Serrett. Learn how to produce, write, and host in the talk radio and talk TV industry. Again, time's running out. Seating is limited. The, uh, the course begins Thursday, February the, uh, the 18th. Deadline to register is Friday, Feb 12, and uh, again, all the details at richardserrett.com. All right, back to our uh, spine-tingling tales. Again, one of my favorite uh, portions of the show, and I see that we have uh, Frank Joseph standing by, so I'll grab a couple of quick calls here, and then we'll uh, get to our discussion on the secret history of America before Columbus. Let's say hello to Pauline here in Toronto. Good morning, Pauline. Um, hello. Um I've I've had a few other experiences, but I never had anything quite like this. I had a friend of mine who had passed away, and he and his wife uh, and I had been friends for many, many years. And um, he had passed away, and his wife had contacted me. Their granddaughter was going to go to uh, France as an exchange student, and she'd written, done a CD with some music and that. And so I, I bought the tape, and I also sent a little bit of money to help with her uh, trip, you know? Yes. And so I was listening to this tape 
um, all day this particular day because we were, were in the car traveling, listening to the CD. And, um, and it was on my mind a lot, and I was listening to it, and I was maybe I'd listened to it four times. So when I got home that evening, I had gone into the back bedroom, and I just happened to glance on the bed, and there was a photograph of him and his wife turned around facing me in the photograph. It was of my 50th birthday party. And I looked at it, and it's like, it's like when you meet someone in a crowded room and your eyes meet. Yes, yes. And it was like, like, hi, and you're surprised to see each other. And it was like this electric shock went through my left eye, coursed all the way through my body, out my feet. My word. And at the very instantaneous moment that, that our eyes met in, in this sort of electrical feeling went through me, my feeling was of surprise, like, you're alive. And I was very joyous. And hmm. then, you know, as I said, the, this electric shock just sort of went out through my feet, and then I just sort of shook myself after. So what, what do you think was happening there, Pauline? Well, I, I feel it, it's, it's an afterlife experience and that he was contacting me and, and thanking me for supporting his granddaughter. That's a marvelous story. And it was, it was the most wonderful, joyous feeling. Pauline, thank you for sharing that. I hope you'll listen in next week as we dedicate the full two hours to that very topic, what happens after we die. That was Pauline in Toronto. Uh, let's you. move down the line and uh, call, uh, listen to uh, Dave, also in Toronto. Now, Dave, you're the man who, who sent me the tweet on the remote viewing show. Yeah, I did, but and, I'm actually calling from uh, Hamilton. All right, and you weren't impressed with our remote viewing oh, panel. Actually, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you got the full tweet, but uh, to clarify it, because it's hard to be uh, a clear in a tweet, um, I was more impressed with the four of them got the same picture, and I actually had the same vision myself that popped into my head. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, and I kind of thought, well, it can't be just a log cabin in the woods. It has to be something more prominent, like the Eiffel Tower or the Washington Monument. Interesting. And here it was, the Taj Mahal. But what was it that the five of us seemed to pick up on? Because the one guy said there was a pine tree smell, so that's not at the Taj Mahal. Now, Dave, so you were sort of uh, playing along at home, drawing as well. Now, have you taken a remote viewing course? No, I'm, I have a, had a lot of uh, premonitions, and I'm fairly intuitive. And it's just something that popped in my head. I wasn't even really thinking about anything, and boom, all of a sudden that vision popped in. And when the four of them agreed it looked like a log cabin, I guess, a pioneer village kind of thing. I was yes. Like, wow. Yeah, well, well, what was interesting was that they, uh, they sort of sketched some little pictures in the margins and so forth, and then the remote viewing uh, instructor, Joanne, brought those into the studio, and we were looking at them off the air. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I looked at everything that they had written down, the adjectives and the descriptors, and uh, they had sketched little pictures, and one of the little pictures was uh, a wheel with spokes in it. And the, the moment I saw that, I didn't. I didn't say it on the air right away, um, but I. Uh, I immediately thought of uh, the Hindu Wheel of Life, and then the Taj Mahal came to mind. And of course, that's what it ended up being. So, I guess together, those those four remote viewers in the other room, uh, and then my sort of fifth, uh, maybe more objective uh, eye, we were able to to nail it. But uh, so Richard, I think the wheel could be like a water wheel from a, uh, you know, a, a, a grist mill or whatever. That's also true. And the true. fact that the one guy had the pine tree and they seemed to be in the woods uh, near yes. a lake, it sounded like the cabin that I viewed. And if 
because they all agreed that it seemed like there was a pioneer village, they said. So, and I had that same vision. So the interesting point is, what the heck did we see if we really saw, you know, this pine cabin in the woods kind of thing is the interesting thing. That's true. You were, Yes, you were all uh, consistently uh, seeing uh, something very similar, and yet the target was something entirely, well, not entirely different. It was a man-made structure. Yeah, I wonder if something's going to pop in the news involving something like this. We'll have to keep an eye on it. But I have a paranormal moment besides that that I wanted to pass on a quick story. All right. We were playing 500 Rummy, the uh, Rummy 500, whatever you call it, the uh, the three of us, and I accidentally popped up the card that you flip over. The second one I popped up, and I saw it was the Queen of Clubs, and I looked in my hand, and I had the Jack of Clubs in my hand. I said, I'm going to have to bury this card because I know what it is. It plays into my hand. And throughout the game, I'm way, I buried it halfway in the deck, and throughout the game, we're getting below the uh, near the bottom, and I'm going to the other two girls. He said, you know, who's got my Queen of Clubs? I'm not going to throw this Jack because I got the Queen. Nobody had it. The game ends. I looked through the rest of the six cards that were left, and it started out second from the top. When I flipped through the cards, it ended up second from the bottom, and I put it halfway in the middle of the deck. My word, that sounds like some uh, sleight of hand that Chris Angel might try to pull off. <laughs> you have no idea. I mean, it defies explanation. I heard somebody say maybe it was the ghost, and I said even if it was the ghost, how did they dematerialize the card in front of us and flip it under the bottom of the deck? Yeah, pretty pretty strange, I'll tell you. Dave, great call, and thank you for uh, for checking in and clarifying your, your tweet. All right, uh, one final uh, call, and uh, then we'll get to Frank Joseph, who's uh, patiently standing by to talk about uh, advanced civilizations in uh, prehistoric America. And that's uh, Doug in Indiana, who has a near-death experience. Doug, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yeah, welcome, Richard. I'd like to share, share with you a hair-raising experience I had. Uh, picture an agricultural sprayer business in Indiana I was working for, and uh, they uh, have a, a sprayer truck sitting out by this telephone pole that needed a starter replaced on it. Okay, I said, yeah, sure, I'll get under there and replace that starter for you. So I start working on it, and this immense thunderstorm starts moving in the area. And uh, as I'm sitting here uh, wiring the starter up, bolting it in place and everything, which takes a little bit of time, uh, it starts pouring down rain like you wouldn't believe. I'm underneath there. Well, I'm going to hurry up and get it done. I'm not going to come back out here later and finish. I'm going to do it now. Water's coming in around me. It's probably getting a couple inches deep. I'm getting soaking wet underneath the truck. And uh, I'm I'm doing the final steps of putting the wires on the solenoid. Well, I've just about got it done, okay? So I hurry up and run inside the office there. And I walk across through the bathroom, grab me a handful of paper towels, start drying myself off. And I go into the main area there that they do mechanical work. And I'm talking to a fellow worker, and we're looking out there towards the truck. Well, I'm glad I got that done. It was about 30 seconds after I got it done, this uh, immense electrical bolt hit the telephone pole that this, this uh, sprayer truck was backed up to, and it lasted. It hit the ground wire and fried off the top staple, and you could see the top of the ground wire bobbing back and forth about five seconds. I mean, it looked like a million-volt uh, hit right there. My word, I'm Doug. I'm thinking, man, at 30 seconds later, if I'd have been delayed, I'd have been fried. Someone was looking out for you, Doug. Maybe someone on the other side. Who knows? Great call from Indiana. Great to hear from you. I hope you'll call again. All right. What was going on in North America thousands of years before Columbus arrived? A great deal, according to Frank Joseph, and he joins us next here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett.
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Before Rome ruled the classical world, gleaming stone pyramids stood amid smoking iron foundries from North America's Atlantic seaboard to the Mississippi River. On its east bank, across from today's St. Louis, Missouri, flourished a walled city more populous than London was 1,000 years ago, with a pyramid larger at its base than Egypt's Great Pyramid. During the 12th century, hydraulic engineers laid out a massive irrigation network spanning the American Southwest that, if laid end-to-end, would stretch from Phoenix, Arizona to the Canadian border. On a scale to match, they built a five-mile-wide dam from 10 million cubic yards of rock while Europe stumbled through the Dark Ages, a metropolis of weirdly shaped, multi-story superstructures precisely aligned to the sun and moon sprawled across the New Mexico desert. Who was responsible for such colossal achievements? Where did their mysterious builders come from? And what became of them? These are some of the questions investigated by Frank Joseph in his examination of ancient influences at work on this continent. He reveals that modern civilization is not the first to arise in North America, but was preceded instead by four high cultures that rose and fell over the past 3,000 years. We'll discuss this with Frank Joseph over the next 45 minutes. He's the former editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine, and uh, he has 20 books which have been published in various languages throughout the world, which include the Atlantis Encyclopedia, Discovering the Mysteries of Ancient America, and Opening the Ark of the Covenant. His latest book is Advanced Civilizations in Prehistoric America. He's a a frequent radio talk show host. He's been interviewed by Shirley MacLaine in a past life, I'm sure, and in this one. And uh, we're delighted that he's uh, joined us here on The Conspiracy Show. Frank Joseph, how are you? I'm very happy to be here, Richard. And we're happy to have you. Listen, where did this start for you, for you your, uh, your alternate view of, uh, of, of um, North America's uh, past? Because, of course, we all learned, uh, you know, our history uh, and uh, back in public school, uh, you know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. I mean, you've really thrown a lot of this right out the window. How did you begin? I began out of total ignorance. I knew about some of these mounds that supposedly were built in the ancient times, and I wanted to find out, well, who built them and why, and why should they even be important, or why should they even care? And it was based on this dead ignorance that an entirely new perspective of America's prehistory opened up in this fabulous, colorful panorama that is available. It's all around us. This is not theory. Uh, this is not talking about some vanished civilization like Atlantis or something. You can go and visit all of these places that I talk about. You can handle even some of the artifacts. The information has been known for almost 200 years. But the trouble is, nobody knows about it. It has not been, as the archaeologists say, vulgarly pe- uh, popularized. So nobody knows about it. What I did as I just worked as a reporter... I put all this information together. I put it into a, digest, into a digestible form that I could understand and average people like myself could grasp, and this incredible story opened up. I did not begin my book. I don't begin any of my books with a preconceived theory. I despise that idea. Oh, I've got some kind of a great idea, and I'm going to hunt and find facts that support my theory. That's a waste of time. 
I begin with the idea that here are all these facts. What do they mean? And if there's any theory or explanation, they're going to arise out of the facts or not at all. And that is how I base this book, Advanced Civilizations of Prehistoric America. Well, well Frank, if, in fact, there were these uh, amazingly advanced civilizations uh, here thousands of years before Columbus. I remember our last chat. You said Columbus wasn't first. He was last. And then you went on to detail all of the, uh, you know, the, the ancient Minoans, the Trojans, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Egyptians, uh, all here uh, 4,500 years before Columbus, uh, elaborate mining operations on the north shores of, uh, of, of Lake uh, Superior, which provided the grist for the, for the Bronze Age, the copper for the Bronze Age in Europe. If all of this was, in fact, taking place and the, uh, the, uh, the artifacts are there and, and uh, this is factual information, why then are we not being taught this? Why uh, are the museums not telling us about this? Is there a conspiracy to hide our true past from us? Well, I'm on conspiracy radio, aren't I? Indeed. Well, there we are. I think the, the real reason for that is, yes, as you say, uh, there has been tremendous impact on our continent made by Egyptians and Phoenicians and so forth. The trouble with it is that they couldn't make it last, that they did make impact here. And there's no doubt about it. But they could not sink down their roots here for one reason or another, usually because of difficulties with the native people. They could not get along. And their societies just didn't make it. However, there are these four societies which established conventional archaeologists admit exists and for which there is abundant material evidence. And these four societies that made it here, that set down their roots, lasted far longer than we have. One of them, the longest lived, was the one that began it all, the so-called Adena, and they lasted for 17 centuries, which has got quite a, a claim on us. Our history, so-called history, begins in 1492 because from that point on, we have written records. Anything before 1492 is considered prehistoric because there are no written records. However, there is abundant physical evidence, not just circumstantial evidence, but trace evidence that you can pick up and use to show that these civilizations existed. Archaeologists know they existed, but they are not discussed. And the reason why they are not discussed in outside of so-called scientifically polite circles is because it's extremely hot. These subjects uh, would throw perhaps adverse light on the perceived history of Native Americans. They don't, actually. It's a misbegotten fear. The Native Americans were here long before anybody else, and they created a valuable, beautiful, natural society that followed closely to the patterns of nature and the cosmos. They did not create material civilizations such as we're discussing here. That does not make them better or worse, but it does make them different. And in that is a feared controversy, and that's why I think at the root why it is not discussed. Political correctness, in other words, it might be a threat to some uh, uh, Native uh, Americans, Native Canadians, to concede the point that perhaps there were um, e Europeans here uh, thousands and thousands of years before Columbus. So it, it would put us, uh, I, I shouldn't say us, it would put Europeans on more of an equal footing in terms of, I guess, claims to this land. Is that is that the idea? 
Well, you know how ridiculous that is, is because the majority of Native Americans, as I have found, I worked with Ancient American Magazine for 16 or 18 years, that the vast majority of Native American Indians in Canada and in the United States are fully aware and have been aware for numerous generations of these light-skinned foreigners that appeared long before Columbus. They have no problem with that. Instead, it is the uh, schooled academicians who are afraid. And I can understand why they have this uh, anxiety, because an anthropologist and an archaeologist that goes into the field needs the close cooperation of Native peoples. And they don't want to do anything that's going to spoil that relationship in order for them to do their work. So there, there are reasons for this. I'm not condemning anybody here in this. But nonetheless, the truth is the truth. And the, these four civilizations that sprouted up abruptly and collapsed had nothing to do with Native Americans as regards their origins, although they had plenty to do with the Native Americans and their history, as it turned out. These four civilizations were sparked by immigrants, came from outside North America, just as our civilization was sparked in 1492 by outsiders. And that's not uh, hate or political incorrectness. It is the truth, and that is all I'm interested in. Frank and Joseph is author of Advanced Civilizations in Prehistoric America. You mentioned uh, one of these uh, groups. Was it the Adena? Yes. Who were they? Where did they come from? The Adena are a people that have been known since the uh, mid to late 19th century. That name, Adena, is an entirely academic tag, as it were, because the first of these mounds was identified with this culture on something called the Adena Plantation in southern Ohio. What these people were really called appears to have been related to a famous name known as Allegheny. Their real name was close to that, or Aleg, Alegui. There are various uh, Indian native tra uh, traditions of them being called something like Allegheny. Now, we do know that many Native American tribes had names for them that described what these people were. And the, the one that was used most commonly was the, Yo, the Yom Kodesh, the Yom Kodesh, which means literally the red-haired giants. Now, this is something that I found personally very difficult to accept, but I now fully accept it because there is a very brilliant uh, mainstream archaeologist by the name of Dragu who wrote a book on the Adena, came out about 15 years ago, and he made the astounding statement and showed diagrams and photographs of some of these Indian mounds that belong to the Adena or the Allegheny, as they probably were really called, which show the burials that were included in these mounds. And one of the mounds that was uncovered, called the Craig Mound, again in southern Ohio, was the skeletal remains of a man who was over seven feet tall. Now, this was not a metabolical uh, anomaly, and that since the discovery of the Craig Mound, around 1900, something like that, dozens of these Adena mounds have been opened to reveal dozens of human remains of people who were seven feet tall and in excess of seven feet. The average height for the women was about six eight, six nine. These people were healthy, they were robust, they were built all the way up. The tallest specimen so far is an incredible 7 feet 4 inches tall. Now this is not theory, this is not made up, this is hard fact. It's even put out by the conventional archaeologists. And these are the people that belong to the Adena or the Allegheny. 
What's remarkable about these people, their great contribution, their first great contribution to America was that they were the people that introduced agriculture, that before they, ar- they ar- arrived in the Ohio Valley 3,000 years ago, there was no organized agriculture in North America at all. And they were the ones who introduced it, not only just agriculture, but really quite refined agriculture. For example, they were great lovers of raspberries. They grew raspberry patches, among other things. And, they built, oh, go ahead. Sorry, and you met, these were red-headed giants, as you call them, redheads. Now, that's remarkable because here we have this tradition amongst Native Americans of the red-haired giants called the Yom Kodesh. And now we have skeletal remains of the people who were racially dissimilar from the Native American peoples who averaged, at least their elite. And I should say that this is not their entire people. They were not all seven-footers. This, I don't mean to say that. I shouldn't suggest that. But their elite definitely were of a very tall nature. Many of them were seven-footers in, in, in excess of seven feet. And they are the red-haired giants. They really existed. When I think of red hair, uh, Frank, I think of uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Celts. Uh, I think of the, uh, uh, the Vikings. Uh, is, is, is that where they came from? You're right on. You're long before the Vikings. The Norse really did not get started as the Vikings till about 800 A.D. We're talking about a people that are a thousand years before Christ. But when I found out about these mounds that they built which were not just heaps of earth. They built a huge mound. That were, the tallest one was about 100 feet high, and it was earth, but they completely covered it in great blocks of stone. So it would have appeared from the distance as though you have a stone pyramid. In effect, it was. The other remarkable thing that the uh, Legui or the Allegheny introduced was not only agriculture and these great pyramidal structures, they also introduced iron. They were iron workers. They had iron foundries, iron furnaces. They still exist. And the iron that came out of them, uh, the slag is still in great abundance. They were primitive structures, to be sure. They were not uh, the modern flues that we know now. They were powered by the wind. But nonetheless, they were iron builders, and there was iron makers. There were no metalsmiths in North America at all before the Allegheny showed up. Now, their mounds are particularly interesting. They're burial mounds because they were used usually for one or two tombs. And the tombs were built in this way. Uh, They were rectangular, and their walls were covered with logs. And the logs were, for fill, were uh, filled in with uh, gravel, and the floors were either um, gravel or else uh, flat paving stones. And then the mound was built over these uh, and around these tombs. You do not find that configuration anywhere in the world, these log tombs with gravel, except one other place, Western Europe, amongst the Celts. Yes. The Celts were also great iron workers. The Celts were also very tall and fair-haired, and red was common amongst them. The Celts were also superb sailors. They built battleships, which were much larger than the Roman warships, and it was only through superior Roman military strategy that the Celts were defeated and their fleets were dispersed. 1000 B.C. is when the Celts were on the move, when they spread all throughout the European continent, and they accumulated especially in large numbers in Portugal, Spain, and in coastal France, and of course Ireland and southern England. Now that's remarkable because at that exact same time, a thousand years before Christ, that's when the Edina show up. 
And the story of the Yom Kodesh that the Native Americans tell us is that they landed on the eastern coast of the United States. They spread inward and created this great, vast empire from the Mississippi River all the way to the Atlantic seaboard. And they headquartered themselves in the Ohio Valley because it was extremely rich, and that's where you find most of the Adena Mounds. So you not only have this physical comparison between two peoples on either side of the world, the Alleghe, the Alleghe or the Allegheny in America, and the Celts in Western Europe, you also have a time period which is exactly the same. The Allegheny appears suddenly in North America, just at the same time that the Celts are flooding into Western Europe. The thing that really nails it, though, more than anything else, is the DNA survey that was done of all Native American tribes about five or eight years ago completed about five years ago. And the DNA study revealed that most of the Native Americans did, in fact, arrive over a land bridge from Siberia, say, between 13 and 20,000 years ago. However, uh, the Algonquian tribes of the north and northwest have evidence of a different DNA lineage, an additional DNA lineage, a relatively modern one, uh, but not so modern as to be after Columbus, and that this DNA lineage supposedly was introduced to Algonquian tribes within the past three to 5,000 years, same period, and the DNA lineage is from Western Europe, specifically Ireland and Portugal. Ah, there you go. So the Adena didn't go away. They just simply assimilated, intermarried, or, uh, if you will, intermingled into the existing native population. No, they didn't. Nah. Okay, well, listen, we'll, <laughs> we'll pick that up on the other side then. Frank Joseph is here. His book is Advanced Civilizations in Prehistoric America. Forget just about everything you learned about pre-Columbia North America. And uh, listen in for the next half hour as it all unfolds here on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Giant red-headed folk created a vast empire in North America, the Ohio Valley, 2,000 years before Christ. They were called the Adena. Frank Joseph is here to tell us all. His uh, latest book is Advanced Civilizations in Prehistoric America. So what happened to the Adena, Frank? If um, I was mistaken in assuming that they perhaps uh, assimilated, what, what happened to them? Well, that's actually partially true, I'm sure. But the Adena prospered for 17 centuries, from about 1,000 years before Christ until 700 A.D. And we do know that they went through a kind of genetic decline, and that's because, ironically, those people that could produce such uh, people of tall stature uh, began to have more and more examples of dwarfism. And not only uh, individual dwarfs, but also dwarfs that were afflicted with very serious genetic problems like goiter and so forth. We know that because of the remains of some of the Adena that have been found. And the Adena even um, made a beautiful uh, pipe sculpture of a an Adena chieftain who was uh, a dwarf with serious goiter and other problems. So they went through some kind of period of genetic decline. What brought that about is uh, enters into the realm of theory. We can't get into that right now. We don't have time for that. But nonetheless, it appears to have happened. And during this period, around, oh, say from about 200, 
to about 700 A.D., when the Adena were in decline for one reason or another, uh, there was an enormous attack that took place on them. It was a, a, a physical violence all across the board. And the Adena were marginalized in their numbers until the story went amongst Native Americans that the uh, Yom Kodesh made their last stand at a place called the Falls of the Ohio, outside of Louisville, Kentucky. And it was there that the last man, woman, and child of this race was utterly exterminated and disappeared forever. That is the story that was told. Around 1900, uh, an early antiquarian went to investigate the Falls of the Ohio and found, in fact, the remains of an illimitable amount, thousands upon thousands of human bones, old, old bones. All of them showed blunt force trauma, and many of them uh, revealed that their uh, forelimbs and uh, legs had been broken open to, uh, for marrow for a cannibal feast. And that is how they absolutely were liquidated. They were the victims of uh, genocide, absolutely disappeared. And for the next 200 years, North America was overwhelmed by a dark age in which all um, trace of civilization, all trace of agriculture, the great mound building, ironworking and so forth, completely vanished. I'm beginning to understand uh, why this is being uh, suppressed, uh, Frank. You talk about cannibalism in North America yep. uh, and who may have been the perpetrators. I can see why that would rub a lot of people the wrong way. Yes, it is. And, and some people still feel very much that uh, history is politics and the, they're inseparable. But nonetheless, uh, all peoples have done wonderful things and terrible things. That is the history of, of mankind. There is no race that is exempt from that. Uh, you have, there's much to be proud of and much to be ashamed of. That's just as, as human nature. Nobody is, uh, has an angelic uh, pedigree. Indeed. And nonetheless, uh, the, the, uh, this, is, this is what happened to these people. And they were not the first. They were rather the first, but they were not the only people that suffered a similar fate. And uh, the, that's when I go in to discuss the last people in this group, which are the Anasazi. They came much later. They were a totally different people, came from a completely different part of the world. Nonetheless, they were immigrants from outside of North America, and they arrived in the Four Corners area of the American Southwest. It's called the Four Corners because the four states touched there. And in a place called Chaco Canyon, which is, of course, very well known today, people remembered as the Anasazi built an incredibly bizarre and very rich culture, civilization, they built uh, buildings that were over five stories high. One of them, Pueblo Bonito, has more than 800 rooms. It looks like a gigantic condominium. The streets of this place called Chaco Canyon were oriented with incredible precision to the positions of the sun and moon. Give me a time frame here. When are we talking? We're talking about 1000 A.D. This is pretty much late. This is not too much further behind the, the advent of modern American civilization. Right. 1000 A.D., just before, the American Southwest was just as uninhabitable as it is today. It was a place you would not think anybody would make any kind of organized society. Nonetheless, a people came from outside of North America in the company of another people, and they are known as the Hohokam less well-known as the Anasazi. The name Anasazi is a Navajo word. It means the ancient enemy. 
We, obviously, these people did not call themselves by that. This is a term. The people that they arrived with in the Southwest were called the Hohokam, which is a Pima word, and it means the old ones who are gone forever, or something very close to that. We also don't know what they called themselves. Nonetheless, the Hohokam were a people of astounding ability. They created one of the greatest water management masterpieces of all time. They transformed the desert, something like over 45,000 square miles of desert, into an incredibly prosperous land that attracted people from native peoples from all over the American West, not just the Southwest, but all over the American West, all up and down the Rocky Mountains, to become part of this incredible sociological experiment. They were water management wizards. They did not just scratch lines in the desert. They created canals of cement called caliche. It's a certain way that they made cement. They were able to narrow the canals to speed up the, the course of the water. They understood rifling to make the water go faster. They portioned out with mathematical precision literally thousands upon thousands of plots, agricultural plots that were very rich. They diverted two small spindly rivers, the Salt River, hardly more than a creek, and the not very exciting Little Gila River. But they expanded these rivers into a absolutely marvelous water management achievement. And the whole area bloomed. It became incredibly prosperous. In the middle of this, they created a rather small city called, remembered by the Pima as Snake Town. It's not because there are a lot of snakes there. In fact, believe it or not, there are not many snakes. It's because the snake was considered a symbol for great knowledge that came out of the earth. It, it, it sounds to me uh, that the uh, the good people of uh, Nevada, Arizona, the American Southwest could use the Anasazi and the Hohokam today because they're <laughs> having huge water management problems. But, but can you, uh, I mean, if you're flying over this area of the American Southwest uh, and getting an aerial view, um, are you, would you be able to, 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 to discern this tremendous hydraulic engineering, engineering feat? Yes, a lot of it still exists. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it was only until the advent of uh, aerial archaeology, that's a very good point you make, that these vast systems really came to light. The Hohokam's, uh, the Hohokam uh, nav- uh, irrigation system was known long ago in, in part, and it was considered oh, pretty advanced uh, for some small-scale work along the river. But it was only with the advent of uh, aerial archaeology that something of the full extent of this massive enterprise finally came into existence. And it's only as recently as 1970 that a fellow by the name of Emil Howery at the University of Arizona wrote the book on it. And it's all just called Hohokam, and it's not a popular book at all. It's not meant to be. It's a scholarly book, but he's got everything in there you could possibly know about this very great people. And he himself is, uh, even though he's an academic, he's just breathless describing the uh, the extent of this achievement, which is not known. It's not it's not popularized. It's I think it's an incredibly exciting work. I'm guessing, Frank, that if if uh, you were to write a book about the Hohokam, or uh, I mean. Would you be denied research grants? Would you be uh, denied tenure at a university if you were poking around in in uh, in uh, the uh, the the attic of America's secret past like this? 
Well, it all depends on how you slant it, I guess. If you uh, make sure that everybody understands that uh, the Pima who live in that area today are the direct descendants of the Hohokam, or you can even say they are the Hohokam, I imagine you can get away with a lot. But if you say, like, hmm, I don't really see too much of a connection between the the ancient builders who just came out of nowhere and the Pima whose ancestors are there for a long time were not interested in these things, then, oh, no, then you're not going to... So who's going to be getting it? Uh, it's extremely political, correct? And and this is not to say that the Pima don't deserve credit. They certainly do, and they were related to these people. But they are not the same. They're not the direct descendants of the Hohokam. And the, and the reason we know why is they don't exist anymore. And, and so, where did the Anasazi, the Anasazi and the Hohokam come from? Do you think originally? Now, this is the most controversial of all. We don't have time much to talk about it, but I will mention it to you. This is a subject that really puzzled me, too. Where on earth did these people come from? A thousand years ago, Europe was in a dark, was coming out of a dark age, was still in the dark age. They weren't in any mood to help anybody else out in the United, in North America with an irrigation system or to build these giant apartment buildings. They never did anything like that. Where do, where do you find anything else like this? And you find it in South America. You find it in Peru. As it turns out, there were two pre-Inca peoples, very great peoples, who did precisely the same thing in Peru that was later done in the American Southwest, namely making these big D-shaped uh, skyscrapers and fabulous irrigation networks. And they were known as the Lacuas and the Huari. Now, they're not known, everybody knows about the Inca, but it was the Lacuas and the Huari which really built the Inca civilization. The Incas were latecomers. They took over all the work that had been done by these previous peoples, like the Huari and the Lacuas. And interestingly enough, I found out that the Huari and the Lacuas got into big trouble in South America. Their enterprise did not work, and they migrated. How about that? We know they migrated north in great balsa wood fleets. They sailed up the coast. Well, my contention is, and I hope to explain it properly in the book, that these people coasted all the way up along the, co the west coast of Mexico into the Sea of Cortez. And once you got there, it's a hop, skip, and a jump, and it's not difficult at all to navigate the rivers into the Four Corners area. And that's what they did. I think that these people, I feel confident that the Anasazi and the Hohokam were immigrants who came from pre-Inca South America, that they brought their expertise into America just at the same time that the, uh, that the Huari and the Lacawas were leaving Peru. If you want to answer a question like that, for example, well, who were the Anasazi, where did they come from? First, you've got to find out when did they start. And then you look at other parts of the world and find out what was going on. And if you find out that there were people very similar to them who migrated at that same time, then you, the connections begin to uh, form up. Frank Joseph, author of Advanced Civilizations in Prehistoric America. Uh, who were the Hopewell, Frank? Ah, that is very controversial, and I don't feel quite as confident about that, but there are a lot of suggestions what they were. The Hopewell were the ones who sort of took over kind of after the Adena. The Adena arrived in America 1,000 years before Christ. About 700 years later, their society was kind of leveling out. They were not, no longer quite the uh, big power that they were when they first started, but they were still in the saddle. They were still in control. 
And about 300 AD, 300 BC, excuse me, a very different people show up from the West. And these people were not big, they were on the small side, and they were also mound builders, but they were builders of a completely different kind. They built effigy mounds. And effigy mounds are earth sculptures in the form of animals or geometric shapes, whereas the Adena, they didn't build things like that. They built great pyramidal mounds. They built mounds that were like dome-shaped, and, and maybe a few uh, linear mounds. And that's about all. But these people, the Hopewell, who are named again, it's an archaeological construct. It's not what they really call themselves. We have no idea. We do know that they were more gracile. That means that they were finer featured and certainly nowhere near as big as the Yom Kadesh or the uh, Allegheny were. And the Hopewell built a minimum of 10,000 of these effigy mounds in the state of Wisconsin alone. We know that because they've been surveyed. And it is the key to the identity of the Hopewell in those effigy mounds. The effigy mounds portray certainly birds and eagles and things like that, but they also portray animals that Native Americans were not supposed to know anything about. For example, they portray llamas, which are kind of interesting. There weren't any llamas in North America, 300 B.C. But most interestingly, the, the Hopewell effigy mounds portray elephants, unquestionably elephants. Only now, two places you can find those that I know of. When mainstream archaeologists uh, looked at these, uh, sur- these uh, mounds that had been professionally surveyed, uh, they said, well, they're not really elephants, and because it's impossible for any Americans to have known about elephants, so they must be birds. <laughs> it's only an archaeologist that could mistake a bird for an elephant Indeed. or an elephant for a bird. Indeed. And uh, just because it's, it can't be true, it must not be true, you see. But nonetheless, these mounds, not only do they portray elephants, not of a generic type or a stylized, they portray elephants of a very definite type. These are not African elephants at all. They're identifiably Asian elephants that have the more pronounced uh, cranial features and the smaller ears. So what on earth are Asian, and these are dozens of them, by the way, that were surveyed by T.H. Lewis, who was a professional archaeological surveyor. He devoted his entire life to, in the late 19th century and early 20th century to surveying 10,000 of these effigy mounds all over Wisconsin before they were farmed out of existence. And included in these, which are available to the public at the uh, St. Paul Historical Society, are his personal drawings of these elephant mounds by the dozens all through Wisconsin. And they're all dated to between 300 B.C. and no later than about 300 A.D., about a 900-year spread, 600-year spread, something like that. And these elephant mounds are only understandable in the context of somebody who has been in contact with this animal. The people, at, uh, again, you wonder, well, what was going on 300 B.C. anywhere in the world? Anything in Europe special at that time? No, not particularly. There was Alexander the Great and interest uh, in India, to be sure, but nothing that would connect with America, it doesn't seem. But 300 B.C. was an interesting period in Japan. There was a culture there called the Yayoi, and the Yayoi were great seafarers. Not only were they great seafarers, they also liked to build effigy mounds. How about that? Mm. And their, one, their, one of their chief gods was Shoden. 
the god of the Yayoi Shodan was an elephant, and <laughs> who was the god of travelers. So it seems to make sense. So it's possible that the Japanese were able to negotiate the Trans-Pacific uh, uh, currents in order to make an impact on North America. Now, what substantiates that is not only the similarity between the Hopewell culture and the Yayoi in their time frame, but also, again, through the DNA, the same DNA that identified the uh, genetic impact made by the Celts on the Algonquians, also was able to find Japanese influences that went back even earlier, especially amongst the Haida uh, and the uh, Tlingit of uh, coastal British Columbia. There's unquestionable uh, Japanese genetic impact made on those people. And then in the American Southwest, there's a people, a native people called the Zuni. And the Zuni Indians have numerous cognates, in other words, shared words with Japanese language. So much so that Japanese tourists have been able to communicate, at least fundamentally, in their own language with Zuni elders in the American Southwest. My That's word, it. my word. The Japanese in the American Southwest, uh, uh, thousands of years, or hundreds and about, hundreds of years. About 300 B.C. it begins. Thousands of years before Columbus. Well, you're not going to read that, I'm guessing, in the Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, Frank, which is why we have you on this program. This is most remarkable. Um, who was building pyramids in, in North America? Well, the great pyramid builders of North America were a, another culture that came along after the Adena collapsed and after the Hopewell collapsed. Both of these cultures were wiped out. They were the victims of genocide. And after the Dark Ages that persisted for 200 years until 900 A.D., the Mississippian culture sprouted overnight. That's just, this is the characteristic of all of these four cultures, whether they're the uh, Adena, Hopewell, uh, Anasazi, or Mississippian. They all begin fully blown with no evidence of any previous development Overnight, they are completely in contrast to the local native populations, and it obviously is an imported phenomenon going on here. And the great pyramid builders were known as the Mississippians, that's what they're referred to amongst the archaeologists, and they completely occupied the area from southern Wisconsin down to the Gulf of Mexico, the Mississippi Valley, and at, their, at the center of this great enterprise was a place archaeologists refer to as Cahokia. This was a massive capital, a megalopolis that spread over St. Louis on both sides of the Mississippi. Uh, where now St. Louis, Missouri is just across the river. There's an archaeological park referred to as Cahokia. And at the center of Cahokia is a pyramid, which is larger at its base than the Great Pyramid of Egypt. The Great Pyramid of Egypt has a uh, base circumference of 13 square acres. Uh, what is known as Monk's Mound in Illinois has a base of 14 square acres. It's 100 feet high. It's a terraced uh, platform mound. And just outside of Monk's Mound is a structure of wood cedar posts, a circle of 24 of these posts with a 25th post at the very center. This is a, or was a highly sophisticated astronomical computer so that a person sitting on top of the post at the center could look at the 24 circled around him and use them as gun sights against the horizon for the computation of the appearance of the Pleiades for the phases of the moon, especially the moon as it rises at its most northerly point. That's when it appears largest in the sky. 
uh, lunar phases, uh, solstices, an incredible amount of astronomical information flooding into what archaeologists refer to as Woodhenge. Unbelievable. It is. It's an incredibly highly advanced astronomy, practical astronomy, way beyond the necessity for for agricultural astronomy, for, for planting. I'd love to know how the old guard uh, academics would explain this giant pyramid larger than Giza in uh, modern-day St. Louis. We'll uh, perhaps have time to answer that on the other side with Frank Joseph, the author of Advanced Civilizations in Prehistoric America. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Imagine the east bank of the Mississippi River across from what is today St. Louis, Missouri. You have a walled city more populous than London was a thousand years ago with pyramids larger at its base than Egypt's Great Pyramid. That'll give you a a nice hint at uh, what Frank Joseph's Advanced Civilizations in Prehistoric America is all about. And uh, just a few moments uh, remain, uh, uh, Frank, but uh, let us in on, on who these Mississippians uh, were or might have been and where they came from. Again, uh, the thing to look for, the answer, if you cannot find the answer around you, look at the time that this civilization erupted and what was going on elsewhere in the world at that same moment. And what we find is at 900 A.D., when Cahokia burst into existence, nothing was going on in Europe to be uh, to uh, consider very thoroughly. That was, of course, uh, in the middle of the Dark Ages, and uh, nothing uh, of, of consequence was happening in relation to North America. However, in Yucatan, there were some very great changes going on. The Maya civilization was literally abandoned. It's one of the great mysteries uh, of archaeology is why this civilization, which did not suffer uh, uh, war or disease or uh, any of the things that would be associated with the fall of the civilization, um, all of a sudden uprooted itself and just left. It's now understood that uh, mass migrations were going on at that time. And some of the migrations, at least one of the migrations, went north. And it came through the Gulf of Mexico up the Mississippi River and replanted itself in what is now southern Illinois, across from St. Louis, Missouri. I shouldn't say actually even across, because it is now understood that this great city, which is admitted by archaeologists to be uh, 30, at least 30,000 people, probably much more, what we're looking at today, the archaeological zone, is actually just the citadel, just the, the, the sacred area, that the population, the residential areas, where, where St. Louis is today. And if that's the case, and it does seem to be the case, the population of this city, incredibly, was upwards of half a million people. And that would include now not only the residents of Cahokia itself, but also um, modern St. Louis itself. It was an enormous city, a huge city. By the way, it was first surveyed by um, no less than uh, President Thomas Jefferson at his behest, uh, that he sent a professional surveyor and a friend of his by the name of Breckenridge to do the first modern archaeological survey was of Cahokia, strangely enough, in the late 18th century. And it was those early surveyor reports which show that Cahokia was far larger than it's portrayed today. Although it's great for your listeners, if they possibly can, to visit this area across from St. Louis. You can see this magnificent mound, which is not just a heap of earth by any means. It has a stone core, which has now been found. They found a stone wall inside of it. It's a magnificent construction. So, Frank, are you saying that the Mississippians were were basically the, the Mayans and they, who may, moved their base of operation north? Yes, 
Wow. I believe that they were Maya. And but, I think that I could go toe-to-toe with any archaeologist on that. It's not only the time date, but the, the, the resemblance, the physical resemblance between Monks Mount and Cahokia and a typical Maya mound are so close that if, if uh, Monks Mound were found in Yucatan, no archaeologist would have any problem identifying it as a Maya structure. The only difference is Monks Mound is made of earth. Well, naturally, because there are no large deposits of limestone in the St. Louis area. Their construction engineers then, as now, have to deal with the material at hand. The material at hand was not limestone, as they had an abundance in Yucatan. Frank, That's Joseph, if you had been my uh, history teacher in high school, I would have paid a lot more attention. <laughs> Well, that's very kind of you to say that. But thankfully, you see, we have uh, Advanced Civilizations in Prehistoric America. That's available at Amazon.com, and I encourage people to check that out. That's a real eye-opener. You'll uh, you'll never look at uh, North America's prehistory the same way again, I guarantee you. Frank, always a delight. I hope we can do it again soon. I sure hope so, Richard. Thank you for inviting me on. My pleasure. All right, thank you, uh, Frank Joseph. All of you who called in during our spine-tingling tales segment, we'll do that more often. That was a good one. Dan Ellison for the uh, knobs, dials, buttons, and uh, everything else that he does for the program. I thank you. Back next week, a two-hour panel discussion on what happens after we die. Check out the website, richardserrett.com. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Facebook. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.